Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Cooper wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we'll dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at some management changes at Expedia and a win, I think, for Mr. Barry Diller. I think it is. Plus, we're going to take a look at Expedia. The CEO and CFO are out. Barry Diller, media mogul, is in. First up, we're going to talk about some beauty trends in e-commerce. We want to bring in Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Luxury Goods Analyst, Deborah Aitken. Uh, Deborah joins us from London. First off, e-commerce. How many people actually buy beauty stuff online? So um, the numbers, depending on uh, which data we're looking at, we can see up to 2 billion people or 2 billion purchases regularly running through every year. Um, With repeat purchasing across mass, across luxury and premium, uh, with transition of mass into premium and vice versa. So everybody's part of the game. But I thought the whole problem was that uh, it's hard to do e-commerce. Like it's hard for Amazon, for example, to kind of break in uh, to that world because you want to see it, you want to talk to someone, you want to touch the makeup, for example. Uh, what's the answer to that? I think overall we're finding uh, that there are companies who are coming through with very good um, technique on application of makeup. Um, being able to transition and show you how to use and define nail polishes, as an example, hair care products and hair usage of, of hair care products and hair colors. So it's all about generationally um, looking at the consumer and transitioning them from purchase to help them to understand and have, have confidence with the product. So, Deb, what are the companies that might be leading the way here that maybe investors can see about maybe there's some success out there. So if we're looking on a global basis, um, I would be pointing to companies with very high luxury beauty exposure. So they would be companies like L'Oreal and also Estee Lauder, which is a pure play. And then also you need to look now uh, creeping into the top 10 as LVMH with its perfume and cosmetics division. And they're growing their e-commerce of the luxury categories anywhere from 30 to 50% per year. Are we also seeing sort of 
e-commerce websites like an Amazon or Alibaba kind of team up uh, with companies like a L'Occitane or something that already have like a pretty solid brick and mortar, pretty solid uh, retail following? Like what's the interrelationship there? For example, Alibaba, we saw with Shiseido, L'Occitane, as you say, Givenchy, Giorgio Armani, so many more, and Tom Ford was one of the latest ones there. So um, Alibaba uses its luxury site, which is Tmall Luxury Pavilion, really dedicated and focused on premium and luxury purchasers, um, and is sending and targeting individually those users. So it's not mass targeting on the advertising side, pushing through ideas of products that they've purchased previously, and it really pushes up the growth profile there. The other side of it is with these types of companies, they're either in higher parts of the high street or they're uh, found when we're going through duty-free. But for many, many areas, particularly if we think of Alibaba in China, many of the smaller tier cities don't have access to these standalone companies and brands. So it's a very strong way to push product through e-commerce and through these websites with shared websites. So what's the potential for sort of scaling up in that? I feel like I might find a product and then I'll compete on price. But for these kind of things like luxury makeup, for example, like can they really compete on price? Like is there any margin gain for any of these players? Strong margin. So if I'm thinking about the um, beauty and personal care industry overall, and one of uh, there are three or four different areas which they chase. So there's, there's luxury, there's travel retail. Um, another of the areas is e-commerce because they're saying that once they're in this industry for two to three years in terms of economy of scale and the build on and return on invested capital, they are making higher margin. And these companies are operating anything from a 17 to a 30% EBIT margin. Wow. Very, very strong as compared to the retailers. So Deb, is this move to e-commerce can put those uh, people that are at the counter selling you that uh, high-end beauty products, is it going to put them out of business? So I think the thing here, and um, if I go back to last year, and I think about one of the presentations actually given by Estee Lauder, it's very much about the omni-channel experience. And as Mastige uh, I've heard moves, that before. Uh, <laughs> as Mastige moves up towards premium, premium towards prestige and up through to luxury, the consumer uh, twofold, different age ranges, different variability on use of, of mobile versus other e-commerce. Um, what we actually see is that they're in store and they're trying products out, then they're reordering online, or they take a tester online, then they go in store to see the full version of what's available. But if they don't have really big stores close to them with the full range of many, many different brands, they'll pick and choose from new websites which can offer you specialist small dosages almost um, with return potential. So there is a real symbiotic relationship across the board as we would see in the whole retail space and that's the same um, for beauty, for personal care and for home care coming through because home care is really behind the curve as compared to these um, personal care players. Deborah, thank you so much. Uh, Deborah Aiken, a senior luxury goods analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we made through the whole segment, Paul, without, I don't know, making fun of beauty or eyeshadow or no, hair products big for you. I, like... read, I read Deb's research. Well, now we're going to talk about Expedia. So CEO, CFO quit and you got Barry Diller really taking over here. Joining us now is Bloomberg Intelligence senior technology analyst Mandeep Singh. What was so wrong with Expedia? 
Well, operationally, they just weren't executing, and uh, the underperformance carried on for the last four quarters. And the latest quarter, they took down the EBITDA guidance by 700 basis points. So when you do that, you know, it's a sign that things aren't going to change anytime soon. And when you have Barry Diller, you know, as the chairman of your company, he's not going to take that on for too long, which is what happened here. So it's interesting. The the stock rose on the news. Uh, so the market, I guess, liked the move. The question is, what can really happen here? I know this is kind of a duopoly business with Bookings.com and mm -hmm. Expedia. What changes can be made or should be made, do you think, to turn this thing around? So a lot of things can be changed operationally. Like you said, it's a duopoly, and they're exposed to this high-growth area of alternative accommodations. That's where Airbnb is doing very well. They're booking the competitor for Expedia has also been doing very well. And for some reason, Expedia that bought uh, home away back in 2015 hasn't been able to execute on that ex acquisition and they've just taken too long to integrate it with the rest of their business. So the first thing the new CEO ought to do is to fix that execution issue around VRBO, which is their home away business they acquired in 2015. And the other is there is a secular shift to mobile in this industry. Mm -hmm. Everyone is shifting behaviors in terms of, you know, booking travel using mobile phones. Expedia has been late to kind of change their course when it comes to the shift from desktop to mobile, and that's something the new CEO will probably focus on. Why? Like, why were they so far behind in all of this? Well, they, there, there are a lot of moving parts to Expedia's business. Uh, they've got uh, this whole Travago uh, as business as a subsidiary, which is the meta search business. That got hurt by Google. So Google has become a bigger threat for the online travel guys in general. They've made a lot of changes to their algorithms, which has hurt all the free traffic that used to come to Expedia mm. and Travago and Booking. And Booking, for some reason, they were early on in terms of adopting to this change from Google. And they that's why their execution has been superior compared to Expedia, whereas Expedia has just been focused on their home away acquisition. Booking, on the other hand, built their alternative accommodations organically. So they didn't acquire anybody, but they're doing relatively well in that segment. So it's been really an operations issue here at Expedia Given that they are a big player with so many different segments, they just need to up their game. Barry Diller is 77 years old. He has controlling stock in this company. What do you think he wants to do with this company? Well, so he realizes that Expedia is in a market which is growing at a healthy, you know, 10, 12% every year. It's, it's a very big market. We are talking about $500 billion market uh, growing at 10 to 12%. And it's a duopoly. So... There is no reason for Expedia to have mid-single-digit growth when the overall market is growing so fast, and I don't think he wants to sell the company here. Hmm. It's just a matter of fixing the execution. So who's going to run it now? I do have to be honest. The other day, I wished for a travel agent. Ooh, the old travel agent. Yeah, just to be like, hey, book me a vacation anywhere, this amount of money, <laughs> this weekend, go. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but side note, um, so who? what kind of person would be best to run the company? Yeah, and, and you make a great point. That's part of the change that Expedia hasn't made in terms of, you know, just being more customer friendly and making small changes like this. So I feel like somebody mm -hmm. externally would be a great candidate, probably from Booking.com, which is uh, apparently doing much better than Expedia, even though they both are the same size. 
booking has been executing a lot better. So somebody from there or somebody from Google even, you know, Google is a big threat to all these guys, so they may probably try to poach somebody from there. Larry Page is free. Yes, very (laughs) good, very good. So when I think about Expedia and and booking, are are they global brands? So if I want to go anywhere around the world, those are the places to go to? Yeah, so they, uh, I mean, in terms of their sales, they primarily generate their sales from the U.S. and Europe. In, in China or in other pockets of Asia, they're, they're, they have their own set of OTAs. You know, in China, ctrip.com is the equivalent of Expedia and Booking. But they, uh, again, if even when you look at the market globally, there are just three or four main players in this market. So it's a consolidated market, really high growth uh, given the size of the industry. And there is no reason for uh, pl- uh, players not to execute given the tailwind, you know, they have, especially given how big travel is as a you know, percentage of GDP in every economy. So, yeah. I also noticed that they announced a new share repurchase uh, program, too. Yeah. Um, how much cash do they have in terms of, like, for R&D, to fix stuff, and then also for share repurchases? Yeah, so, I mean, again, comparing Expedia and uh, Booking, uh, Expedia has never been too big with buybacks. Booking, on mm-hmm. the other hand, generates, you know, has a free cash flow margin of 30%. Expedia's is much lower. I think what they have to do first thing is to really cut down on their sales and marketing expenses. They're spending mm-hmm. about $6 billion on sales and marketing every year. And we're talking about, oh, that's yeah. a big drag on their EBITDA line. And and given you know how much traffic they get, the reliance on Google is really hurting them. A lot of those $6 billion are going on Google to get the traffic. That's what they need to fix first thing. Once they fix that, they'll it'll be easy to cut costs and you know generate free cash flow, which can be used for share buybacks. And how did they do that? Did they just you know work on their brand so people don't necessarily go to Google? They know, oh, I gotta go to you know Expedia. Exactly. So the shift with the shift to mobile, it's a direct app traffic. Expedia should be able to get the traffic on uh, their right. apps. Yep. They haven't done that. So with the desktop model, people used to start their travel search on Google. And then the traffic used to come to Expedia or Booking. That has changed with the mobile world. It's a direct app traffic. That's what they need to focus on, the mobile execution, and that's where they'll be able to re- reduce their reliance on Google. Do they need to like buy any company to do that? Probably. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Expedia sure. has been yeah. built around. Uh, look at the history of the company before Mark uh, Okastrom took over. Dara Kostroshai, who is running Uber, built Expedia around acquisitions. They acquired mm. a lot of companies back in 2014-15, you know. I mean, we're yep. talking about four to five big companies, Orbitz, you know, Travel, Travelocity, and all those companies that they bought to build Expedia. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst, Mandeep Singh, thank you so much for your comments on the Expedia. Where do you eat if you want to be unhealthy? Is it going to be Chick-fil-A? Is it going to be Burger King, McDonald's? What, what's your poison, Paul? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> so for more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence restaurant analyst Michael Halen. Michael, you cover the restaurant sector. As we look ahead to 2020, I guess it's all about the consumer. What's your outlook for the fast food part of the restaurant business? Fast food, we expect, you know, discounting to kind of ramp up next year. So, you know, the industry in general and discounting was kind of benign in 2019. You know, there's most chains were kind of implementing a barbell strategy where they are uh, offering some pretty good value bundles and some value meals for their lower income consumers to kind of keep traffic up and also trying to 
upsell their the middle income and upper income consumers into buying more expensive and higher quality wares, right? So it kind of kept discounting to a minimum. But we think things are going to change next year. Typically, election years, you know, we see consumer spending kind of pull back a little bit due just due to economic uncertainty. So we think we could see a similar type of situation in 2020. So not to ask the silly question, but okay, fast food, Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, but there's a lot more out there that we may not think of right off the bat. Can you give us a sense of those big players that we all know and some smaller ones that we need to start thinking about? You know, we like to talk about scale, right? And and scale really does matter. And so uh, in this environment where we expect more discounting, and part of it's going to be kicked off by uh, Wendy's entering the breakfast day part with a national launch in January. Yeah, it's going to be very big, and we're going to expect some of these bigger chains, McDonald's and Burger King especially, trying to protect their share, and they're going to do so with discounts. And and we think scale matters, right? So McDonald's and Burger King, they can source their products more cheaply and offer price points that, you know, Wendy's, Jack in the Box, and Sonic just, just can't match. So, Mike, give us a sense of technology. When I think about technology in the fast food, is it just Grubhub and Uber Eats, or how are the fast food industry integrating technology into their business that maybe drive traffic, maybe, or just kind of drive sales? Yeah, technology has been huge, not only for driving traffic, uh, but also it's going to be big for reducing labor hours in the restaurant. So in terms of uh, customer-facing technology, you know, fast food's done pretty well this year. Same-store sales are up about 2.5% on the year, which is a pretty solid gain, much better than we've seen over the last handful of years or so. But it's all been being driven by higher price. And a lot of that is done with, you know, machine learning that's on these kiosks and on these drive through menu boards that are using suggestive selling to help upsell customers, right? To help convince them to buy higher price items or add on to their orders. And it's helping drive higher guest checks, which is which is growing the same store sales because traffic's falling. Traffic's falling in QSR. It's falling in casual dining. You know, there's just a lot more competition out there for restaurant dollars, whether it's, you know, food trucks, food halls, entertainment. So think uh, Baltimore Entertainment? Lane. Eater, yeah, think. Is that when uh, I went to go see Frozen 2 and I got to have wine while I did that? <laughs> yes. Like, that's exactly of. what it is. <laughs> uh, you know, Lucky Strike Lanes and Baltimore Lanes. Think, um, you know, places like that. I did Dining in the Dark in Las Vegas, right? So it's pitch black room and the only light you can see is a little, a little tiny little light on the night vision goggles of your waiters and waitresses. <laughs> Um, but it, it's interesting. Okay, that's just weird. Customers, yeah, it was it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Very interesting. I don't know if I'd be there on a regular basis, but um, but it, it's showing a kind of a bifurcation where customers either want to you know sit on their couch and order delivery, or they want the complete opposite experience. Right? They want to be completely immersed uh, in, in that experience, and so. You know, you be Dave and Buster's is, is building stores at, at a very rapid pace because people are looking, um, you know, to, to uh, for these very engaging type of experiences when they go out. So it sounds, in some ways, actually, a lot like retail uh, in, in sort of how you're using technology and like the kind of things that customers want. So what happens to like the Jack in the Box and like a Sonic? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough. You know, especially when McDonald's is doing so well, you know, they have 14,000 stores in the U.S. and these smaller chains are competing directly with them. So 
you know, what they can do is, is the simple blocking and tackling, you know, offer, you know, improve your operations, improve the service, improve the quality of the food, uh, try to have some, some offerings on the menu, um, at, at good price points, you know, some of these chains are doing a, a good job, but it's really hard for them to to gain share when McDonald's is doing so well. You know, when McDonald's was kind of sucking wind five years ago, these chains were were growing same store sales mid single digits. You know, but then but since McDonald's has turned things around, it's made it much more difficult for everyone else. Mike Kalen, thanks so much for joining us. Mike covers the restaurant industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. Have you ever driven an EV, Paul? I have not. I have, and it really freaked me out because I couldn't hear it turn on, and it took me a long time to understand how to drive it. But apparently, <laughs> we're going to have a few years, and it's going to be an awesome shift. For more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence energy policy analyst James Blatchford. James, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense for the policy framework for electronic vehicles. Um, it seems to be a mishmash here. Are we going to get any more clarity in 2020? I think it will actually remain a bit of a mismatch, to be honest. Um, but there's no doubt that electric vehicles remain kind of the central component of policymakers' push in their efforts to respond to climate change in the in the transportation sector. That support probably endures, um, obviously, with implications for the automakers and buyers, of course, but of fuel retailers as well. So for me, the biggest question is uh, the subsidies. So uh, there seems to be a a bill, I think it was Chuck Schumer that put it through, uh, that would extend the amount of cars that would qualify for a credit because the problem is that Tesla and GM have already hit that limit. Where are we with that? So yeah, there is a bill out there. Um, They're talking about what they might want to do. Obviously, it hasn't really moved that far since it was first announced back in April. But I think ultimately they do figure out how to get something passed here. There's pretty widespread support for it, for electric vehicles generally. And as you said, GM, Tesla, they're both either running down, uh, in Tesla's case, at the end of the year, or in GM's case, the end of the first quarter 2020 uh, to, to zero on the, on the credit front. So it's still there for the rest of the automakers, but um, looking for an extension in other cases. So, James, give us a sense of, in the U.S., how much is state rules versus federal regulation support? Because it seems like California and some other states are kind of doing things on their own. Yeah, so there is, of course, that, that credit we just talked about, which is, at the moment, $7,500 for the first 200,000 vehicles that an automaker sells. There are some other smaller things, but then mostly it's really what the different states are doing. Um, And that, too, is a massive mix. California is definitely the best example of a state really pushing to get more and more EVs on their roads. Historically, they've accounted for about 50% of total EV sales. They have a higher gasoline price and tax. They include a requirement for all their new residential buildings, for example, to be circuited appropriately and be EV ready. Carpool lane access, some free parking, uh, and you see the, that translate to a degree in sales as well, right? And therein sort of lies the problem, because in essence, the rest of the states look towards California for guidance on uh, emissions policy, and the government doesn't like that. They think the Fed should be setting it and not California. And I really honestly cannot keep track of all the lawsuits between the Trump administration and California. Where is it? That's specifically more centered on the um, fuel economy regulations that they're still working on. Obviously, a bit of a disconnect between the two groups, but perhaps getting closer. You've seen 
California bring down its uh, required improvement in fuel economy on a year-by-year basis a little bit from what they were targeting uh, originally. And the, the EPA and it's have also talked about maybe having improvements as well rather than just staying flat. But there's still, I think, some way to go in that negotiation. Uh, I continue to think that ultimately we do get some kind of deal here because, because ultimately it will benefit the space more broadly to get one. And, and the automakers don't really want these two regulatory regimes or more potentially um, that they could have. James, are there any other countries we can look towards for maybe a better policy or regulatory framework for electric vehicles? I do think that the policymaking like this is always pretty messy. Certainly, there are some countries that have made more progress getting larger numbers of EVs sold, but you know they're they're almost always smaller, and they have maybe more funds available or different government priorities. I think it's always going to be a mix of policy. I think they're going to have to balance things continually. Um, We're seeing some of the car companies look to cut jobs, right, to make space in their budgets to fund EV work. Well, at the practical level, that's going to impact policymakers and their decision making when it comes to putting fees on vehicles and things like that. I think it will just continue to evolve, really. Yeah, really interesting what Germany does uh, in the middle of all that. Because you don't think about Germany as uh, being you know, the auto business is such a big, big part of their economy. Right. They're not yeah, going to love all those job cuts. Yeah. James Blatchford, thanks so much for joining us. James covers energy policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about electric vehicles and the policy framework for pushing that industry forward. And now from EVs to another topic close to my heart, and that is oil. So for more, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence, a senior oil and gas analyst, uh, Vince Piazza. And I want to talk about your 2020 outlook. So if I was going to categorize 2018 issues, I would say they were all production issues. 2019 was all about got to live in cash flow, got to live in cash flow. What's next year? You know, I think next year is similar to 2019. You know, we see very few fundamental catalysts emerging in 2020. Uh, You have very resilient production in 2020. You have concerns about a maturing economic cycle. You have a greater need for OPEC to not only extend through 2020, but also curb additional barrels to help balance the market. You have new fuels standards providing a ballast across the value chain, but you have this uncertainty with respect to a new election cycle coming, additional geopolitical tensions, attacks on Saudi and Iranian oil installations that are causing even greater uncertainty and volatility. We definitely have additional capital curbs coming, additional CapEx cuts from the U.S. EMP producers, and the need for additional free cash flow But that free cash flow is quite limited to the larger peers in the group. We don't see M&A as a big driver of valuations in 2020, but there is a need for smaller players in the space to address concerns around scale and address concerns around balance sheets, mostly on the gas side, but also for the oil side as well. It seems like, you know, the oil business, you think about the oil patch and the, it's kind of a boomer bust type of scenario and, and now we've read so much and we've heard so much about the balance sheets for some of these smaller players that you've talked about. Why wouldn't you have some MA and some big players come in there and buy it up? Well, I think prices for the equities of some of these smaller players are down so much.
much that management teams and boards are shying away and hoping to hold on for a better day. You also have investors who are calling for more capital discipline and not inorganic growth opportunities, not consolidation. You have seen these last two or three deals where investors have sold off both the um, the, the buyer and the seller um, on concerns that you've already sunk a great deal of capital in the ground. Develop those resources. Don't go out and buy additional resources. But for some of the larger players, the integrated players, there is an opportunity to come on in and pick up some additional scale, most likely in places like the Permian, which is a very large legacy play that we're seeing continuing to grow. Uh, So there are opportunities for larger and smaller to buy smaller, but we fail to see the need for these mid-cap players who have a good chunk of acreage to come on in and consolidate some of the smaller players. Some of the smaller players have the need uh, for capital, um, but we do see an opportunity for some of the maybe the private equity guys to come in and further develop their holdings in uh, the EMP space. And they have already come on in and picked up acreage and developed a portfolio of assets on not only the upstream side, but also across the energy value chain. Vince, what I noticed, though, that is sort of different than before is that there's a narrative out there that all the good stuff has been drilled and that in areas like the Eagleford, for example, anything that you're producing is going to replacing production that's declining rather than growing production. The other story is that there's lots of more levers to pull and there is more space for these companies to sort of grow their core acreage and deal with efficiencies. Um, Which story do you subscribe to? I subscribe to the story that the first mover has advantages, and that not only applies to oil, but it also applies to gas. So producers in the Permian, uh, the Pioneers, the Conchos, producers in the Bakken, the Continentals, or in the Anadarko Basin, producers in Appalachia on the gas side, whether it's a Range or Cabot, the prime acreage will win out. And as you drill up your prime acreage and expand past those core acreage positions, you are running into diseconomies of scale where well tests um, have not gone in favor of the EMPs. So we are starting to see some degradation of that thesis that this is just a manufacturing play where we just need to exploit the existing resource. A lot of the prime acreage has been drilled. Uh, A lot of the prime acreage has been acquired. And so that's why you may see a period of consolidation to gain scale in the existing areas by existing players rather than someone coming in who's outside the existing play looking to penetrate a new area. All right. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Vince Piazza, a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Oil and Gas Analyst. Didn't work so well, though, for Occidental. Carl Icahn is, is sort of making that real. Yes, he does <laughs> not care for that deal. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. And this is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. 
he's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.